It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcasts on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and help rate us. I mean, rate us so that it helps other people find the shows. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknall. Hi Kay, hi listeners. And Michael Steindorf. G'day everyone. So for the past two weeks the program has focused on climate change and energy policy. And we're going to continue this week with the theme of how Australia could become a renewable energy superpower. We're delighted and honoured to have with us today Professor Ross Garneau, who many of you will know is famous through the 2008 and 2011 Garneau Climate Change Reports. An adequate introduction would take up a third of the show and we're short on time anyway because Professor Garneau is also an extremely good mate of Bob Hawke and has been inundated today with the the news. So we're actually going to have a a slightly shorter show um, as Professor Garneau still graciously agreed to do this uh, interview by phone, but we'll have to wind up a bit early. So, hi, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Michael. Thank, and again, thank you and commiserations on your loss. Yeah, um, we've lost our uh, greatest Prime Minister, uh, also a bloke who uh, uh, once he focused on the issues about 10 years ago recognised the importance of uh, quickly doing the job on climate change uh, <laughs> and uh, recognised that while he was Prime Minister, that he, like most of the world, hadn't actually become aware of how important it was, but he was one of the early ones after that to uh, r- really take it up as an issue. Mm, that's wonderful to hear, Ross. It's Kay here. Ross, you launched the BZE Renewable Energy Superpower Report in 2016, and, you know, obviously you've um, been working very hard in this area for most of this millennium, and you've now completed a six-part seminar series on the challenges and opportunities of energy transition in Australia and you're launching a book on the same subject matter. We've attended your seminars, as you know, covering your new book and it was incredibly interesting and actually painful to revisit the political renewable energy developments in Australia this century. Yeah, we shared that pain. (laughs) Can you just give us a brief overview of what your book called Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity Covers? Yeah, well, the, the, the lectures will be uh, uh, the, the essence of the book. It'll come out in early August with Black Ink. Uh, but uh, it, it looks at what's happened since um, my reports in 2008 and 2011. Uh, 2008, very detailed report for all the state premiers and the prime minister of the day, and lots of very detailed modelling. And then Julie Gillard and the multi-party parliamentary committee which included the Greens and uh, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor as independents, uh, commissioned that update in 2011. So this is, this is another update, really. Uh, it starts with the science. Mostly uh, the atmospheric physics has confirmed 
the uh, average expectations, there's less uncertainty now, but without changing very much uh, uh, where things are headed. Most of the parameters that I was focusing on in 2008 and 2011 are tracking on the unhappy uh, trajectories that, that I noted then. Uh, warming in Australia now up to nearly 1.2 degrees, um, increasing steadily decade by decade. Pretty sad story. Uh, I provided charts on how uh, stream flow into Perth dams was uh, was declining and uh, making that big city uh, dependent on uh, desalination and depleting groundwater. Well, that's continued. A uh, sea level rise a bit above the range of expectations that I plotted from the science 10 years ago. But but mostly uh, the, the science has, has re- confirmed the heavy uh, expectations of a decade ago. Uh, it's now clearer that we're, to be safe, we're going to have to focus on 1.5 rather than 2 degrees, and that doesn't give us much time. That means the world as a whole will have to have zero net emissions by about uh, 250 and and, uh, earlier unless we get cracking and head on a straight line towards that now. Developed countries, including Australia, have to go a bit faster because ethics and the international community agree that developing countries need uh, a bit longer, can't be much longer or it won't work. Uh, So it's reasonable for us to hit for zero uh, net emissions by about 2040. Uh, The good news is that's possible and it uh, uh, won't cost much. And by uh, the 2030s, it's going to be a net economic gain uh, as we start to uh, use the new advantages that we'll have in the post-carbon world. Very low-cost renewable energy, the most important one at a time when the whole world uh, is heading towards mainly renewable energy, will have the the lowest cost for renewable energy in the developed world because we've got the best sun and solar and also other renewable resources, but it'll be sun and wind uh, for a while, uh, that, that are the critical ones. And uh, uh, so the good news is it's possible, uh, and uh, if we get cracking, there'll be economic advantages in it. P- Professor, on that topic of it's possible, in your lectures, uh, and people will have to go to the video replays for these to, to see them, but... You spent considerable time on your fish graph, and it, it's obviously very hard to describe this on radio, but essentially um, you were saying this this graph, uh, two bars of the graph had, had merged to change the shape of the fish, and if I'm correct, you're saying where 10 years ago you were saying there were, there were more costs than immediate benefits um, in value to acting on climate change. Now they've merged so that uh, it's worth mi- mitigation costs immediately. Is, have I got that right? Well, in, in some industries, certainly for electricity, the faster we go, the cheaper our electricity now. That's uh, that, that's something that's changed, changed a lot. Ten years ago, solar was still expensive. Uh, and while I expected uh, solar to fall in price, I didn't expect it to fall anything like it has. Similar progress, although so not quite as rapid on wind turbines and, and uh, very rapid progress was starting later in batteries. Uh, we've become much more aware of uh, how much pumped hydro can do for us in the last couple of days, uh, last couple of years, uh, and uh, that, that's going to be a very important part of our system. So all of these changes mean that in the electricity sector, a big one for climate change, uh, there's actually a, a net economic gain in going faster. Same is going to be true of, of cars. 
the, the cost of electric cars going to come down very rapidly through the 20s and by the end of the decade it'll be much more expensive to to keep the old jalopies than to, uh, to, to get with the future. But there'll still be some parts of the economy where uh, there are uh, costs of uh, the transition. So overall, in, I'd still say that in the very early years, there's a bit of a cost, but uh, by the 2030s, overwhelming gain uh, from making the use of our opportunities in the post-carbon economy. And following on from that, one more broad question. You didn't use the term super wicked problem, but essentially that's what you were describing. You, you used the phrase, you said, this is harder than any other policy problem that has come before our polity. And you also said it may be too hard for rational policy making. And you drew out some of the factors of those that if you could very briefly address them along the lines of the long time frames, um, the costs early, benefits late and so on. Uh, can you just address that a bit for the listeners? Yeah, well, that's what I said. Uh, in my report in 2008, I was worried then that it might be too hard. Uh, that, and uh, it, there's the factors you've mentioned, Michael, but also uh, vested interests particularly powerful uh, and used to getting their own way mm-hmm. in the fossil... Uh, we know, and all know the sort of people you're talking about there. Yeah, and uh, especially in Australia and America. So that, that made it an even more difficult problem. And, and the, the companies that were affected, they're used to investing a lot of money in the political process, buying the policies they want and so for all of those reasons uh, this uh, was always going to be a hard one but I did say uh, it's a diabolical problem with a saving grace the saving grace was that even then in 2008 and more so today uh, uh, there's very strong community interest in this it's uh, it's a harder problem more complicated uh, than uh, any of our other policy problems but it's also one in which the community's more strongly engaged, a very wide spectrum of the community. And uh, that, in the end, is what's made it possible to keep making progress. Um, Ross, you also had a chart that showing the world's CO2 emissions and the Paris 1.5 degree trajectories to zero emissions. It seemed to me that um, if we had embraced the BZE stationary energy plan in 2010, our path to zero emissions would have been so much easier now. What's this delay cost us? Uh, no doubt about that, uh, Kate. The, the, uh, you know, we, uh, if we'd started in 2010, if we'd moved in a straight line to zero, in, uh, by the mid-2050s we would have been doing our fair share in a global effort. Uh, and now, uh, even if we get cracking now, it'll be 2040. If we only have minus 26%, like the current government uh, wants us to have by 2030, then we'll have to fall off a cliff and do, mm-hmm. do a lot in the last five years and get there by 2035. Uh, so uh, so we have uh, to get there much quicker because we're delaying it. Yes, because uh, there's only a certain amount of uh, uh, greenhouse gases the atmosphere can absorb without risks of dangerous climate change. And if you put it more up there early, if you're slow in getting started, uh, you, you've got to stop earlier. Uh, that's something that a lot of people don't think much about. Uh, but and 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 trying to do it all quick, more quickly, uh, makes it harder, but but also costlier. So better to give ourselves more time by starting earlier. Yeah, I, I guess it, it'd be hard to quantify what the costs of policy instability in Australia are and what the policy and infrastructure strategies we need for a quick transition to the... Oh, well, you, 
Yeah, we got we, we did have some quantification. The uh, Energy Security Board had some modelling done about the cost of policy uncertainty on electricity prices, and they were huge. It not un- policy uncertainty not only inhibit new low cost uh, renewable energy coming in, but it inhibits uh, replacement and uh, maintenance uh, on the old energy, and generally uh, makes our system less reliable. So. The costs of uncertainty are colossal. Mm. So let's, that's a pretty sad story, Ross, but there's, there's an upside, isn't there? You've, on, on the positive side, you talk about the advantages that Australia has if we do launch headlong into taking action. What sort of competitive advantage do we have heading into this new type of economy compared with our old carbon-intensive economy yeah, well, well the, the old carbon intensive economy, we had advantages because uh, relative to the rest of the world, uh, we've got an awful lot of coal and gas per person and that made us a big exporter, the biggest exporter in the world of, of coal and, uh, and soon to be for liquefied natural gas. But uh, we've got similar advantages, uh, in fact, even bigger for renewable energy. Uh, no other developed country's got the combination of... Uh, sun and wind potential that that Australia has. Uh, And uh, the difference between the old fossil fuel-based advantage and the new one is that the the new one is sustainable in two ways, obviously sustainable in that we we can do it forever uh, or at least as long as the sun keeps uh, shining in the sky, Uh, whereas sooner or later uh, fossil energy was always going to be depleted. But also... uh, Gas and uh, coal, especially coal, are more tradable. Uh, so uh, uh, once we made our, uh, our Eastern Australian uh, coal and gas resources internationally tradable, exported, then our domestic prices rose up very close to, in fact, in the case of gas, for a while above East Asian prices. Uh, so we didn't really have a competitive advantage at home from using them. But it's much harder to trade uh, renewable energy uh, either uh, directly through uh, transmission lines uh, or indirectly through turning it into hydrogen or ammonia. Uh, and uh, high tra- international transport cost means that we'll keep uh, a lot of the advantage at home and that'll give us a very big advantage in using energy, especially in processing our raw materials. And I highlighted that in the, uh, the superpower lectures. Ross, um, I asked this question to you the other day and I'll ask it again. Australia receives most of its export opportunities from coal and gas. How do you see that being replaced over the next 10 years? What what will it be replaced with and how quickly? Yeah, well, not most from uh, coal and gas. Coal and gas are very big, but uh, they're not a majority of total exports. But um, No, but they're a large uh, component of yeah. fossil fuel. Uh, well, well I, I mentioned in the uh, sixth lecture that, that, that just uh, using um, local renewable energy to turn our uh, alumina, our um, raw materials for uh, aluminium, which we currently mostly export as raw in a raw form, turning that into aluminium, uh, just turning half of our exports into aluminium and our iron ore uh, will have a huge advantage for domestic uh, processing uh, once the world's uh, uh, gone away from coal and is using renewable energy, uh, hydrogen's going to become the natural way to turn iron ore into iron metal. Uh, and we're going to have huge advantages of that. And so uh, half of the turning half of our uh, aluminium oxide uh, 
or uh, exports into metal and a quarter of our iron oxide uh, um, exports into iron metal would give us far more jobs and uh, income than the total exports of gas and coal combined. Uh, now, that's only mm. iron ore and, uh, and uh, aluminium processing wow. are only part of the story because I, I mentioned uh, the huge potential of silicon, uh, which is mostly energy with uh, sand and quartz, and this country's got a bit of sand and quartz, and, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, and then put a lot of energy with that, and you've, you've got a very valuable product. It's the main input into uh, photovoltaic panels and, uh, and computers, which are the growth industries of the world. And then there's all of the new battery materials, uh, you know, which are and uh, electricity uh, wiring materials that are becoming uh, very important in the post-carbon world economy. Uh, lithium, uh, copper, cobalt, nickel, uh, vanadium, uh, all of these are going to be uh, uh, very important processed exports from Australia. So... Uh, uh, we don't have to uh, worry uh, about where the exports are coming from. The arithmetic shows that uh, uh, these can be much more important than uh, coal and gas are now. Professor, once again, we're extremely grateful for you making this time, and I'm aware we promised to let you go in, in two minutes. So one last question, if I may. Uh, behind all that stuff you're saying of, of basically replacing our fossil fuel exports with high-embodied energy uh, materials... There's the $64,000, I probably should say $64 billion question, that the implications of that are that we cannot just replace um, our our current energy consumption with 100% renewable, but go well beyond that, say 200% or even 450% where at the moment we're consuming 225 terawatt hours a year nationally. If we went to 1,000 terawatt hours, that's 450% and use, <clears throat> use this export in high embodied energy products. With the right political setting, how far do you see it possible for us to go there? Oh, well, just just one number. Uh, I was talking to Alan Finkel, our chief scientist, uh, after my lecture the other night, and uh, he mentioned that uh, you know he's he's uh, developing a program for the government on uh, hydrogen uh, production and uh, use in Australia and exports. Well. Uh, one of the uh, the big items in demand is going to be uh, hydrogen for use in the economies that don't have renewable energy of their own, like uh, Japan and Korea. Uh, and he he said that to uh, replace our natural gas exports with hydrogen, which is physically uh, quite possible, uh, would require 900 megawatts of... Uh, Generating capacity. Uh, so, sorry, uh, 900... Uh, yes, uh, gigawatts of capacity to... Uh, have I got the units right? Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's, nine, nine, um, I think it's 900 terawatt hours compared to... It's a, anyway, about four times our current... Yeah, uh, okay, then you're right. 900 uh, is right. Yeah, yeah. About four times our current... Uh, Total national uh, consumption. Uh, uh, and, that, and that's only part of the story. The really big ones are going to be the uh, the mineral processing. Mm. Well, look, um, thank you once again. We'll, we'll let you go because I know you've got many more duties that we haven't mentioned to the the listeners associated around Bob Hawke's death. So thank you very much again, Professor. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, very good to be with you and with your listeners. Bye. Mm. Thank and you. thanks for all Bye-bye. the work you've done. We've been uh, speaking to Ross Garneau from the University of Melbourne. Yeah, uh, but what I would like to say is that there's a, an interesting um, lecture series on on the University of Melbourne's website that you can go to and it covers all the um, seminars that he did for his new book. 
And I think it's the um, energyunimelbourne.edu.au. So have a look at that. And even just Googling Ross Garneau. And yeah, or if you Google the Melbourne Energy Institute then um, and go to their events page, then that's it's all there, easy to find. Um, something slightly off topic, but listeners might realise people are giving a lot of gratitude to Bob Hawke and what he's done for the country, but um, Ross Garneau was, was a huge part of that too. The stories are that that um, Bob wouldn't do anything without saying, what does Garno think? Um, and in fact, the just listening to the news this morning about the economic reforms that Hawke brought in, such as um, uh, deregulating the banks, um, floating the currency and so on, they were all ideas that came to him from Ross Garno. Um, we do owe Ross a tremendous debt for the way he set up Australia for the continuous prosperity we've had in the last 20 years. Quite a visionary economist, I think, Ross is. Mm. So, Mike and Kay, are there any other points that you picked up from the lecture series that you think are really worth sharing with listeners? Yes, I really would have liked to have asked Ross about the opportunities in regional Australia um, in terms of what we can do and enhance our job opportunities and um, obviously revenue. Does, Does that flow on from his discussion now about mineral processing? That's right, it does. And so he was nominating places that are already on the grid, places like Newcastle, Portland, um, Collie, Latrobe Valley, Gladstone, all these places that already have the infrastructure and they have the resources around them and they have the, the people for the job opportunities. So this ties in very well with a just transition, which, which of course we're also very concerned about. Um, and he was pointing out this fortuitous um, synchronicity between where these large industrial areas are and have had um, large grid supply that they could actually use that engineering expertise to convert to supplying the, in the other direction back into that grid infrastructure that they've got there and use the engineers and workers that they've got there to do that. Um, so whether it be solar farms, wind farms and so on. Um, and he, he said not just um, immediate jobs but ongoing jobs in this. Well, so the skills and infrastructure that are there will easily be translatable to new economic That was his argument, yes. Mm, absolutely, yes. The other area that I thought was really interesting was talking about sequestration. And he's got a, a lot of interest in that. And um, ca- he, the book covers uh, the sequestration of carbon in Australian soils, pastures, woodlands, savannas, forests, and even mentions um, harvesting the what he calls the miraculous properties of the Australian blue gum and mallee. What are their miraculous properties? Oh, <laughs> you'll have to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> However, he did explain it by saying that the, the, the mallee root is underground and it regenerates all the time. So you cut off the bits that you need and, and the rest of it keeps regenerating. It's, so it's, it's trunk an, is actually underground. He said it's, it's mistakenly called a root, in fact. It's, yeah, it's, that's, that's the trunk. trunk. Yes. Okay. And so what it's useful as like a fuel or for paper or what what sorts of Or just straight drawing down carbon. um, It's sequestering carbon carbon. under the ground. And there's tremendous potential in in Australia to develop that further because of its unique root system or trunk system if you look at it that way. And on your question of subsequent processing, that ties in with um, advantages he claimed Australia had in biomass um, because there are some fuels that are extremely difficult to replace. Airline fuel is the, the obvious one. Um, so maybe in the interim that's done with 
um, biofuels, and so then you have to actually <clears throat> have some um, carbon source like that that you convert into those fuels. It's still emitting carbon, but at least it's a closed loop. You're drawing it down to emit it. Um, at the same time, yeah. Mm. I'm really interested in that part of it because at the same time, there's quite a development in the um, aviation industry in terms of electri- electrification. Norway has um, has a policy that by 2030, all domestic planes will be electric. That's what they're trying to achieve. And wow, all giving, domestic flights in 10 years. In 10 years. That's incredible. And in fact, and an Australian company recently got the... And got that, that's exactly right. An Australian company's got um, the rights to develop... To contract to build the And engines. build the electric motors for that, those planes. So there's a fair bit going on in Australia in, in terms of electrification of aviation as well. And I think that industry is going to grow very, very rapidly. And, the, and in small planes, at least, they're saying that if you redesign the planes, the whole wingspan can just be batteries. And and normally the payload is an issue, but they're, they're saying that if you design it properly, that isn't an issue. And in fact, you can get increased efficiencies out of a plane. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Probably um, the one last point that's worth mentioning is um, the issue of subsidies. Um, and we've got people like the IPA having on their agenda list dropping all subsidies to, to renewables, and they are more visible, things like the RET subsidy and so on. However, what flies under the radar amazingly, given the size of it, is the subsidies to fossil fuels. And typically various organisations have, have been quoting those of between 12 and $19 billion in Australia per annum, depending how you count them. But there's a report just come out in the last week from the IMF that says Australia is subsidising fossil fuels to the tune of $29 billion per annum. $29 billion. And, and, and do you know what that actually works out as per capita? $1,198 per, per person, person per year. Wow. That's so, yeah, that, that would um, offset a lot of um, so even, tax cuts, wouldn't yes, it? Even, <laughs> just, even just dropping those subsidies would make renewables an instant winner. But think if you dropped them and, and diverted them to renewables, how quickly we could do that transition. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I think we just about need to wrap it up now. Okay. Well, I've <laughs> found it – I have to say I, I will be buying the book. I found it a very interesting series of seminars that um, Professor Gano gave us and he does cover nearly everything in, that we can do here in Australia to very quickly transition to zero carbon and um, addresses all the opportunities that um, the BZE Superpower Report addressed as well. So uh, I think it's a very comprehensive book. Yeah, so look out for that opportunity in August, listeners. That's when the, the book is supposed to and be launched. you can launched. pre-order. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You can pre-order. That's right, on the website. If you yep. And once again, go to the Melbourne Energy Institute website to listen to the lecture series. Thank you, everyone. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. 
Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.